Okay. Book of Judges. You can go ahead and uh, go to chapter number two. And we've been in a series for some time that I've entitled uh, Jesus B.C. We're looking at uh, types of Christ in the Old Testament, and we're looking at uh, salvation in the Old Testament, kind of a, in a manner of speaking there. And we've, we've covered a lot of different characters and a lot of different situations that we've been going through this study. And uh, we have seen, and my, my focus all along on this, has been showing that salvation has always been by grace through faith. That a lot of people get the wrong idea, the uh, wrong thoughts of the Old Testament, as if people were saved differently in the Old Testament than they were in the New Testament. And really what we're finding is the only difference was in the Old Testament, they were looking forward to Christ and we're looking backward to Him. And it's always been by grace through faith. We started out with Adam and Eve in the very beginning of this, and whenever they sinned, he told them, In the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. The wages of sin was uh, was death, but the gift of God was eternal life. And he uh, killed an animal, shed blood, clothed them with the skins of that animal, and in that we saw a type of Christ. That there was a substitute, there was something innocent that died for the one that was guilty, that shed its blood for uh, for them. And through that they received forgiveness. They received an atonement, a covering for their sin. And we can trace that all the way through the Old Testament, how that God continued to provide a means of salvation, that it never has been, never will be by works of righteousness that we have done, but it is always by His grace. And we have traced uh, through many different situations here. We saw the people of uh, Israel uh, saved out of Egypt through miraculous work of God, we saw the Passover, a type of Christ, and they came out and they went through the Red Sea. And uh, after all of those things and the many different uh, times that God had proved himself to the people of Israel, when they got up to Kadesh Barnea, they still rejected God. They still looked at their own might, their own ability, their own works, and they came up short. And they didn't trust God, and they were condemned to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until the next generation came in. And then what we ended up coming to last week was whenever Moses was dead, Joshua led the people of Israel uh, to the second conquest, the second time of coming to the promised land. And this time, by faith, they trusted God, and God brought them into the promised land and their very first battle was at Jericho. Well-known story for everyone, I'm sure. And so they came to Jericho, and God gave them one of the most ridiculous uh, strategies, military strategies, that have ever been devised. March around the city, shout and blow trumpets. Right? And essentially what they were doing is they were celebrating the victory before the walls fell. You ever think about it that way? I mean, they're marching, shouting, and blowing trumpets. That's That's claiming the victory before it ever happened, wasn't it? And so that is by faith. And they had to trust God. It didn't make sense by man's standards. It didn't make sense by the way they thought that thing should go. But they trusted God, and God ended up giving giving them that victory because they trusted him. Not their own works, not their military might, not their own abilities, but they trusted God, and God gave them the victory. 
And it's that way for us today. Uh, by man's standards, uh, the gospel doesn't make sense. Because if you look at all the different religions, all the different denominations that are out there, there are plenty of ones that have devised a way of salvation that makes sense to mankind. If I'm good enough, if I perform enough good works, if I'm a member of this church and I keep all of their rules and all their rituals, then God will let me in. That's what makes sense to mankind. But God says that, that all of our righteousness are as filthy rags. The very best works that we can do still fall short. They're still tainted by our sinful flesh, our sinful nature. And so God says, how about this? Since you're sinful and incapable of perfection, and perfection's my standard, how about I come down, live the perfect life on your behalf, give my life in your place, and then offer you salvation by my grace with the only stipulation being faith. Right? That doesn't make sense to mankind. Why would God do that? Well, for God so loved, right? Why would God do that? That doesn't make sense. And no matter how much man preaches self-love, no matter how much man preaches their own goodness, they still realize that we are not uh, worthy of the love of God. You look through all society, mankind realizes we're not worthy of the love of God, right? And so why would God do that? Because he's God. He is love, right? He is light. He is the one and the only one. He is the only way. And that's why he did it. Because he looks at mankind and he knows that we can never get there by our own merits, by our own abilities. And so he made a way when there was no way. And that's what we see all the way through the Old Testament is him making a way when there is no way. And him making a way so that man knows that it's not by our works or not by our abilities, but that it's by him. And so back to what we're talking about with Jericho, uh, he gives them victory. And even with that little victory and it being very plain that it was of God, they start getting a little bit arrogant in their own minds. They start getting a little bit puffed up. They march against the next, uh, not really a city, the town, right? It's a small town. It's a not even a big city. And they march against it. They fail utterly because they failed to consult with God before time. They tried to do it in their own ability, their own strength, not realizing that they had been tainted with sin, the sin of Achan, right? And so we saw how Achan didn't trust in God. Whenever God says don't uh, lay hands on any of the spoil, those are the first fruits, those are God's. And so he said don't lay hands on the spoil. And Achan said... You know, God made lots of promises, and he's told about this land that flows with milk and honey, but I'm going to have to dig and scratch and grab for what I can. I've got to take care of my family, because how can I be sure I can trust God? And so he takes the gold and the silver and the Babylonian garment, right? He's just providing for his family, isn't he? But we find that he is not trusting God. He's not following God by faith. Once again, he falls back into the same old rut of trying to do it his own self, his own way. And he condemns several men of the nation of Israel as they march into that war that they, they lost, several of them to die, as well as himself and his entire family. Because guess what? It is faith that pleases God. It's not up to the works that we do. It's not for us to figure it out. It's not for us to do what we feel is best or what makes sense to us, but it is up to us to trust God, to believe Him. And the other one that we looked at last week, and I know this is all 
uh, a bit of review, but not everyone was here last week, right? And so anyway, uh, the other one that we looked at was Rahab. Out of the entire story, Rahab the harlot. How would you like to have that moniker tacked on your name the rest of your life? Well, the rest of known history, right? Here we are some 3,000 years later. Still, Rahab the harlot. That's who she is. But we compared her with Achan last week because Rahab had heard. She wasn't even there whenever they crossed the Red Sea. She wasn't there whenever Moses went up and received the Ten Commandments on Sinai. And when the, the mountain smoked and the, the voice of God boomed through the air, she wasn't there through the plague. She wasn't there with the manna. She wasn't there with all of the works that God had done and giving water out of the rock and making streams in the desert and all these different things. She wasn't there for that, but she had heard. And so she heard testimony of the God of Israel, and she says, I know that he is God that he is the God, the real God, and all the gods that I've grown up with, all of these pagan gods of Canaan, don't they're, they're not real. They pale in comparison to the God of Israel. And so she believed God, and the phrase that we keep coming back to, she believed God, it was counted to her for righteousness. And so it brought salvation to her, even though she was Rahab the harlot, the Canaanite, the pagan, but she believed God. God counted her for righteousness. He put her into his family tree. She became the grandmother of King David and the ancestor of Jesus Christ, Rahab the harlot. Big difference between her and Achan, right? And the big difference is one trusted God, one believed God, and the other one didn't. And so we see this all the way through the Old Testament. Over and over and over, there's this theme that God wants us to trust him. God wants us to rely on him. He wants us to depend on him because here's a truth that we can't escape. God has created us to be dependent on him. You realize that you couldn't have even got out of bed this morning if it wasn't for God. You couldn't even be breathing the oxygen into your lungs right now if God didn't keep your lungs working and your heart beating. Everything that we are, everything that we're ever going to be or ever have is dependent upon God, our creator and our sustainer for life. But just as true as that is, that everything that we are and will ever be is dependent on God, from the very beginning, from the time whenever Satan lied to Eve and said, God knows that in the day that you eat thereof, you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil, mankind has been set on trying to assert his independence from God. We were created to be dependent on him. We were created to have a relationship with him. We were, we were created to walk with him. And ever since that first sin in the garden, we have been trying to assert our independence from God. We see it in Cain. Whenever God says it's by the blood, he says, well, I'm bringing vegetables. Right? Tower of Babel. We don't need God anymore. We're going to create our own gods. We're going to make a, a tower that's going to reach up to the heavens. We can worship the gods of the sun and the moon and the stars and everything. That's what mankind has always tried to do is to assert our independence. And even the nation of Israel, though they have seen so many times how they need God, how they were so dependent upon God, how God came through every time for them. He took care of all their needs. He provided for them. He protected them. 
Every time, whenever things started going good for the nation of Israel, they turned away from God, disconnected from him, and started following all of the wickedness and ways of the world. Right? And so that brings us to where we're at tonight in the book of Judges. And the book of Judges is kind of an odd book. We like the book of Judges because it's it's full of stories. It's got some of our hero stories, right? We remember if you grew up in church or around church or anything, you remember the stories of uh, some of the judges and how they were presented to us almost as heroes, right? But I don't find very many heroes in the book of Judges. We've been talking about types of Christ throughout the Old Testament, and I will tell you without reservation whatsoever, I don't believe that a single one of the judges in the book of Judges, and there's 13 of them, by the way, I don't believe a single one of them qualifies as a type of Christ. Is that interesting? We saw several types of Christ. We saw Joseph, almost a perfect picture of Christ. Many of the things that went on in Joseph's life mirror Jesus' life. We can compare Moses and the way that he uh, was rejected by his people, but yet he came back and he delivered them out and how he was uh, God's man for the... We see how he could be a type of Christ to them. We see so many different ones through there, how God's using them. And we come to the book of Judges, which is where God is sending deliverers to the people of Israel, and not a one of them would qualify as a type of Christ. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? So I'll, I'll get you all involved a little bit. I've already talked a lot. Out of the book of Judges, how many judges can you name? Without looking. Without looking. <laughs> oh. Maybe I should be specific. How many do you remember? Samson? Y'all better pipe up before they take all the easy ones. Ehud, yeah. Ehud, Samson. Hmm? Deborah. Girls are too quick. You guys are missing one of the easy ones. Hmm? Othniel, yeah, that's one of the more difficult ones. Now you're looking. Gideon. That was the easy one. That was the one I was looking for someone to say. Gideon and Samson would be the two easy ones, right? Jephthah, Shamgar, Tola, Jer. Um, what? Mm. Shamgar, I think you already said him though. So yeah, there's several of them there. Deborah and Barak is the another judge that's with Barak or with, with or Barak, depending on. I don't like saying it that way. I'll leave it to your all's uh, imaginations as why I prefer Barak over Barak. But anyway, so there's several different judges there. But something that you'll notice if you go through and you start looking at all of the judges. Something interesting about all of them is that they are all extremely flawed, or all the ones that we know anything about, right? Think about it. We're, we're being brought up in, in Sunday school and whatnot, 
and Samson, the judge. You dig into his life just a little bit. What kind of man was Samson? Proud. Very proud. Very proud. Everything that he was doing was out of selfish and proud motives. A lot of what he did as being a judge, whenever he was um, delivering the people from the oppression of the Philistines, was they did me wrong and I'm going to get them back. Not a godly example, is it? He went down and he saw the woman and he told his mom and dad, get her for me because she pleaseth me well. That's a hero for you, right? Put forth a riddle at his wedding. And then whenever they got it from his, uh, got the answer from his fiance by threatening and all those kind of things, he went out and killed a bunch of men to steal their clothes to settle his bet. I mean, hero of the faith, isn't he? Right? Let me just tear apart y'all's childhood a little bit, right? What about Gideon? He was a coward. Where does the angel come and find him? The angel comes and calls him, uh, uh, oh, I can't remember the exact terms, but he refers to him as if he is some kind of a brave warrior, and he is hiding and threshing grain while he's hiding away from the enemies, from the Midianites. And whenever God calls him, sends the angel and calls him, he tries his best to get out of it. I think we can relate to that, maybe. He tries his best to get out of it. And what method does he use to try to get out of it? Okay, he's testing God. How does he do that? Yeah, he's putting out fleeces, right? Anyone ever heard that term used, put out fleeces? Mm -hmm. Trying to determine God's will until you're putting out fleeces for God? Gideon's story is not a, an endorsement of that method. Gideon is trying to get away from God. He's trying to get out of it, and he's doing his best to do that. So he's putting God to the test, and he's like, okay, I want to put an impossible situation before God, and it's not going to happen, and I can just go in my merry way. And God just kind of takes his excuse from him. All right? So putting out fleece is not exactly a way for determining God's will. It's not endorsed by the Old Testament, right? And so you look through these different ones. You've got uh, Deborah and Barak. I can't really say much about Deborah as far as being uh, anything uh, flawed with her. But Barak is. Whenever she's talking to him as the prophetess and telling him what to do, I guess one of the things we can say for her is that uh, there was no men that would rise up and lead, so she had to, right? But Barak, whenever she says, okay, you're going to go, you're going to lead the army and do all this, he says, I'm not going to let you go with me. Right? And so we're going through all the book of Judges. There's plenty of others we could. Uh, Ehud's the one that killed, the, uh, killed Eglon, the fat king. That's an interesting story, isn't it? Jephthah was a uh, harlot's son who was rejected by his brothers, and they wanted nothing to do with him until the enemy came. And then whenever the enemy came, they went looking for him because they needed someone who could fight, and they knew he could fight better than they could. And he makes a deal with God and says, if you give me victory, I'll sacrifice the first thing that meets me whenever I go home. 
And it's his daughter, and so he kills his daughter. Have you all seen how messed up the book of Judges is? And so the reason I'm bringing all this out, there is a reason. Okay? The reason I'm bringing all of this out is we're not going to, to the book of Judges to find doctrine. We're not going to it to find that uh, ways to live the Christian life. What we do when we come to the book of Judges is we find what happens when man is left to himself. The capstone, the key statement for all the book of Judges is found in the very last verse of the last chapter of the book of Judges. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And so if man does that which is right in his own eyes, if man follows his heart, got to bring that one out for you, because that's what that is. And that the world's philosophy, follow your heart. Do what's right in your own eyes. And if you do what's right in your own eyes, you get the book of Judges. And so all the way through the book of Judges, there is a cycle that repeats over and over and over again. The people of Israel are blessed and they prosper. They forget God. They quit seeking him. They start turning to the gods of the nation, uh, nations that are around them and the Canaanites that's been left behind because the first chapter of the book of Judges is... Uh, they, uh, is a catalog of their incomplete conquest. All of the times that they failed to go in and win victories when God told them to go win victories. Okay, Whenever they came up short, either because of fear or doubt or simply just apathy, they failed to do what God sent them to do. They became complacent. They became comfortable. They started worshiping the false gods. And so God took away the blessings. He allowed the enemies to come in and to take over them, to reign over them, and to oppress them. And whenever the oppression got bad enough, when the wages of their sin got great enough, finally they repented and they called out to God and God sent a deliverer. Okay? And so that's what happens over and over throughout the book of Judges. I've already had you to turn to Judges chapter number two, and I, well, we're going to read, Okay? But I've kind of been giving a little bit of a condensed version of it here because obviously I'm, I'm just wanting to, to get one thought across tonight and not do a full study on the whole book of Judges, okay? Because we could we could just take it in verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the book of Judges, that, but that's not our goal with this study that we're doing because we're looking at Christianity B.C. We're looking at salvation B.C., some of the lessons that we can learn. And so Judges chapter number two, and we're going to start reading in verse number one. I just want to read a little ways down, and this is going to cement in some of the things that I've already been saying. It says, And an angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I made you to go up out of Egypt and have brought you into the land which I swear unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. There's God's promise to him. And ye shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. Ye shall throw down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Wherefore, I also said, I will not drive out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare unto you. And it came to pass, when the angel of the Lord spake these words unto the children of Israel, that the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochum, and they uh, sacrificed there unto the Lord. 
And when Joshua had let the people go, the children of Israel went, went every man unto his inheritance to possess the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being a hundred and ten years old. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance in Timnath Harris, in the Mount of Ephraim, on the north side of the hill of Gash. And also all the generation were gathered unto their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. And all the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and served Balaam. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods of the gods of the people that were round about them, and bowed themselves unto them, and provoked the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord, and served Baal and Ashtaroth. And so as we see here, Judges is an extremely sad book. We like to look at the hero stories. We like to look at the deliverances uh, of uh, Ehud, and we like to look at, uh, um, I'm drawing a blank on the, uh, Barak and, and Deborah. We like to look at Samson and, and Gideon. We like to look at all these great things that God does through some of these very flawed individuals and we like to look at those and say, oh, look at how they were delivered. Look at how they were saved, right? But the truth of the matter is, in the book of Judges, God has demonstrated to his people who he is. He has demonstrated his power. He's de demonstrated his might and his ability. And yet they continue to forsake him. Yet they continue to turn away from him and serve other gods, which are not gods at all that are idols, that are false gods, that are the construction of man's own minds. And we look at all of this idol worship of Baal and Ashtoreth and Chemosh and all these different ones of the Old Testament, and we say, well, how, uh, how archaic is that? How, uh, you know, how pagan of them? Because we would never bow down to a golden image, would we? We wouldn't bow down to some kind of wooden carved image. And so we see that and we think, well, that's, that's very primitive of them. Certainly, we don't have any idols today, do we? Oh, yes, there's plenty of idols today. We're just a little bit more refined in our idolatry, aren't we? And so what ends up happening is we are still forsaking the God who has proven himself faithful for the ways of the world in which we live. Because isn't that what was going on with the nation of Israel at that time? They came into the promised land. God says, wipe out the Ammonites, or the Amorites, excuse me. Wipe out the Amorites. Wipe out all of them. Get rid of the Canaanites and drive them out of this land. I'm giving it to you for a possession. Don't leave any of them alive. And some people would raise up a little bit of a fuss against that and say, well, how cruel is that? How unfair is that? of God to just wipe out an entire population to give it to his people. But if you read the rest of the Bible, compare Scripture with Scriptures we're supposed to, why was the children of Israel in Egypt for 400 years? Slavery. Slavery was one reason, but in God's point of view, in God's way of doing things, why did he say that they were there for 400 years? On who? They went down as 
Jacob and Joseph and the patriarchs, right? And so they went down to Egypt. I didn't really see a whole lot of judgment. That I guess Joseph's brothers were pretty nasty individuals already, right? The patriarchs. Just so they could grow the nation without okay. Okay, that was one very good reason. God used Egypt as an incubator for his people because if they would have grown to the number that they were in the land of Canaan, all of the tribes around them would have seen them as a threat and there would have been constant war and fighting. But if they were protected by Egypt, one of the largest nations at that time, then they'd be safe, right? Even if they were in slavery. But the reason that the Bible gives that they had to wait to possess the land that God gave them. They had to wait to possess what God had promised Abraham for 400 years was because the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. Y'all remember that passage? The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. So in other words, he says, I'm giving the people of Canaan, the land that I'm going to give Abraham, I'm giving them an extra 400 years to repent. I'm giving them an extra 400 years to change their ways. I'm giving them an extra 400 years to come to me. Because God is long-suffering. God is merciful. And before he was going to lead the Israelites on a conquest of Canaan and run out all the inhabitants, he gave them ample time and they exhausted all of God's mercy. And God's judgment was passed. They had completely and utterly and finally rejected him. And he says they are ripe for judgment. And so I can justly, and in keeping with my own nature, I can sentence every one of them to annihilation. We see this happening a couple other times in Scripture. We see it happening with Sodom and Gomorrah. Does anyone have any qualms with God about him wiping out Sodom and Gomorrah? They had proven themselves to be utterly wicked. There was no place for them to remain because they had proven they were not going to get any better, only worse, right? And the other time we find is in the days of Noah. That God says that every thought in the heart of man was only, was only evil continually. That's what was going on with the Amorites. God says their iniquity has been full. I have judged them justly as the God of all creation, and I have sentenced them to death, and Israel is to be the executioner, and they came, and they were supposed to march against Canaan, they were supposed to overthrow it entirely, and they were supposed to not leave anyone alive. Because God promised them, if you leave any of them alive, they are so corrupted, they are so wicked, they will be as a cancer that will infest the entire nation of Israel, and it is going to corrupt you as well. It's going to be as thorns in your side, and these people that you leave behind are going to end up corrupting you and are going to corrupt your children after you. And in chapter 1 of, of Judges, we find that they came against this one, but they weren't able to overthrow them. Why? Because their God wasn't powerful enough? No, they weren't trusting in God. They were trusting in their abilities. They were going to march against this one, but no, instead they made a peace agreement with them. They had some kind of a treaty, some kind of a pact with them. This group became their servants, their slaves. And next thing you knew, they were seeing all the idol worship in the land, and they began to adopt that way of worship whenever things started going well for them because idolatry resonates with the heart of men. If you don't believe that, this is what humanism is today. This is what the religion of the world is. 
is doing things the way that we think they need to be done, the way that it makes sense to man. Because ultimately, isn't that what idolatry is? Idolatry is man-made religion. Idolatry is man deciding what God is supposed to be and creating a God in man's own imagination and man's own image. And so whenever we bend things around to go the, the way that makes sense to us, the way that suits our whims, the way that we think that it should be, rather than going according to the way that God says it should be, we've created idols. And so whenever we follow in, fall into this materialistic, worldly, carnal way of thinking, whenever we start seeing things through the lens of this world and not through the lens of God's word, we have already went well down that way to idolatry. And so whenever we start trying to bend God to fit the world's perspective rather than see the world through God's perspective, we are off track. And so this is what happened as the people of Israel came into Canaan. They left many of these idolatrous nations behind. And whenever they did that, they began seeing the way that they worshiped their idols. And they said, that resonates with my sinful heart. And so since everything is going good with me, we're going to worship the way that the Canaanites worship. We're going to abandon God. Because God says that I need to rely on him. I want to rely on me. God says I need to do things his way. I want to do things my way. And so God cramps my style. Right? God gets in the way of me being me. God gets in the way of me following my heart. God gets in the way of me fitting in. And so everything's going good for me. My bank account's full. I'm successful at work. I've got friends. I've got these different things going on. And so why do I need God? He just cramps my style. And so we start putting distance between us and God. And this is what was going on in the book of Judges. But see, here's what happens. We put distance between ourselves and God. We start following the world's philosophies and the world's way of thinking. We lose the blessings of God that got us to that place of peace and of prosperity in the begin with, right? We lose the blessings of God. We bring upon ourselves the judgment of God. Things start falling apart because God is a just God, but he's also a good father. And no father worth his salt is going to let his children go down a path that leads to destruction without chastening, right? We're talking a little bit before church about uh, some of the kids that act like total heathens in the shops, right? It's because they don't have anyone to chasten them to set them on the right path. God chastens his children, and that's what he was doing to the nation of Israel. And so as they started going down the wrong path, he took his blessings off of them. He allowed them to pursue those enemies and allowed them to follow their paths, and he allowed them to reap what they were sowing, and soon the enemies were overtaking them. The enemies were enslaving them. They came in bondage to the enemies. They were being oppressed. They were being burdened. They were being harmed. And finally they cried out and said, this idolatry is not working too well for me anymore. I better go back to God. And whenever they repented, whenever they turned from their idols and turned to God, guess who was there waiting? God was. And so God sent a judge. He sent a deliverer. And now he didn't send a, a knight in shining armor. He didn't send a Jesus figure to them. Instead, he sent an extremely flawed individual 
that wasn't worthy of the position that he was in, that didn't have the abilities that he needed or didn't possess those characteristics that he needed so that they could see plainly it was God that brought the deliverance. We go to Egypt, to, to Gideon. I don't know how in the world I got Egypt there. We go to Gideon as an example. They find, God finds Gideon hiding, afraid of the enemy, raises him up, tells him to go out and uh, raise up the army, right? Raises up the army. He gets like 10,000 men out there. And God tells him what? It's too many. If you go with 10,000, even though the other army is much bigger, if you go with 10,000, you're still going to say, hey, look what we did, right? And so he whittles it down and he whittles it down to where it's Gideon and 300 men against an army that's as the multitude of sand on the seashore. And God doesn't say go out and uh, swing swords and battle them and do all these different things. He says take a lamp and put it in a pitcher. Take a trumpet with you. Right? God confuses the enemy. The enemy kills themselves. They turn their swords against each other. They end up wiping themselves out and Gideon and his army sets there with a broken pitcher and a lamp and a horn, and watches it. And afterward, they're like, hey, that was pretty wild, right? But God brings deliverance in a way that mankind knows it wasn't me that did it, it was God that did it. And so getting back on track with our uh, our subject at hand, our lesson that we're looking at, in the book of Judges, how do we see uh, the truths of the sal of salvation of Christ in the Old Testament. Where do we see the gospel in the Old Testament here? And it is this fact that none of what Israel was doing merited God's salvation. That's pretty plain to see, right? Can you find anywhere in the entire book of Judges where Israel is just behaving to the level where it's like, yeah, that one deserves to go to heaven. That one deserves God's favor. Yeah, that one's a good one. We need... Even the judges weren't qualified, right? And so you look at Israel all the way through the book of Judges and you're like, God, why didn't you just wipe them out and start over again? Isn't that about the case? God, why would you save them? God, why would you deliver them? Why would you have mercy on them as wicked as they are? They keep turning against you. They keep rebelling against you. They keep following after false gods and false idols. God, why do you have mercy on them? It's because salvation is a result of who God is, not who we are. Salvation is a result of his nature and his character, not ours. And so all the way through Judges, it clearly shows that we are sinful, we are flawed, we are wicked, we continue to sin against God, we continue to rebel against God, and yet God has mercy on us. Yet he still offers salvation to us in spite of us. I saw a thing on the internet, I think it was today, and it says, we laugh whenever we think of Judas selling Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And then we realize we do it every day for free. That's kind of, that hits a little bit different, doesn't it? Because we are the same. We can, we can look at these guys and we can ridicule them. We can point out all their flaws. 
until we turn the mirror to ourselves and we realize that we do the very same things as they do. And so we can say, God, how could you save someone like that? And if we would be honest with ourselves, God, how could you save someone like me? There is no goodness that I can claim. There is no merit to my name. There's nothing that I can do that is worthy of salvation. It is only by the grace of God. And so we look at the nation of Israel here in the book of Judges. They didn't deserve the favor that they were getting from God. But they needed it. Isn't that the case with salvation? If they were performing at such a high level, they wouldn't really need saved, would they? Can you imagine the lifeguards jumping in and swimming the or saving the the Olympic swimmer that's doing laps? Like, I wasn't drowning. I don't need to be saved, right? But see, there's no Olympic swimmers when it comes to mankind with regards of keeping the law. There's none of us that are just excelling at it, right? Because the Bible tells us clearly that we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so this is what we're seeing here in the book of Judges, that Israel was a mess. But they had to come to the place where they realized they were a mess. As long as they thought they were performing well, as long as they thought that they were doing good, as long as they could salve their conscience by their religiosity, as long as they could worship their false gods and prosper in the land, they had no need of God. But whenever they realized that the wages of their sin was coming due, when they realized there was a payment that they were required to pay and they didn't like that payment, it was then that they turned to God and they turned to him completely empty-handed. They turned to him without anything to offer, not a bargaining chip to their name, and they said, here I am, God, I am a mess. I have nothing to offer you. I have messed up again. I've messed up again. I've messed up again. Here I am, God, will you save me? And he does. And we could argue it from a Christian perspective here. You say, okay, well, we've been talking about lost men, right? But whenever we look at this here, this was God's chosen people. This was the nation of Israel, right? This was the children of God. And we can apply this to us as Christians as well, because even as Christians, there's none of us that are performing well. Whenever you think you have the Christian life figured out, whenever you think, oh, I'm really performing well, boy, I'm laying up the rewards, I'm piling it up in heaven. Whenever I come to God, whenever I die or whenever he comes back for me, he's just going to be so glad to see me and he's going to congratulate me and tell me how well I've done. No. Because if we're honest with ourselves, even after we're saved, even after we're the children of God, we still fail repeatedly. It doesn't mean we lose our salvation. It doesn't mean that he kicks us out. He didn't, the nation of Israel did he? I think if I was God, praise the Lord, I'm not. But if I'd been God and I saw the mess that the children of Israel were getting into, I saw the things that they were doing, I'd say, okay, let's find somebody else. Surely there's a different nation that would do better than what they are. I mean, even if you look at the world today, the nation of Israel is still rejecting him. And there are nations on this earth that have accepted him 
the Gentiles, by and large, accepted Jesus whenever the Jews rejected him. There are people today who think that God replaced the Jews with the Gentiles. He didn't. He's still got a place for them in his plan. But what I'm saying is, if I was God, I would have got rid of them. But if I keep going by that philosophy, if I keep going by that way of thinking, I look at my life and see all that God has done for me. I see the salvation that he's extended to me. And then I don't trust him. I try to do it myself. I try to assert my independence. I try to prove my worth. I try to uh, live out this Christian life by my own abilities, by my own strengths. I try to say, okay, God, watch what I can do. Can anyone relate to that? And God's just up there probably shaking his head. Right? You think God's ever shook his head at you? <laughs> Here they are again. I've gave them all the reason in the world to trust me. They still don't trust me. Gave them a book full of examples to prove that I can be trusted. Still don't. Look at all the times, all the things I've done for them in their lives. Look at all the things I've provided. Look at the salvation that I've given. And they're still down there trying to do it by themselves. Right? And coming back to the book of Judges. It's amazing how this goes hand in hand, isn't it? Things doesn't change. Things don't change. It's the same in the Old Testament as in the New Testament. The way the Israelites were living back then is the way Christians are living today. The way the world was back then is the way the world is today. You've got churches full of people trying to act like the world and fit in with the world. You have the Israelites trying to fit in and act like the Canaanites. Same thing. And all along, God is sitting there saying over and over, I love you. I have rescued you. I have saved you. And I have provided for you. I can be trusted. I can be relied upon. I just want you to trust me and obey me so you can receive the blessings and benefits of being my child. But yet you keep running away from me. You keep rebelling against me. And you force me to chastise you. You force me to withhold my blessings from you, to try to correct you and try to guide you. And that's not what God wants to do. All of us as parents have had the idea of this hurts me more than it hurts you, right? You want to ever say that? You have to discipline your child and you say, this hurts me more than it hurts you. I won't expound on that too much, but does that happen with God? Do you think that he enjoys having to chase on us? Do you think that he enjoys us going down the wrong paths and us making stupid decisions and us uh, putting ourselves in a place where God can't bless us? He doesn't enjoy that, but he just desires for us to trust him and follow him. Yeah, he'll bail us out whenever we get ourselves in trouble. He'll send a Gideon or a Tola or a Jer or a Shamgar or a Samson, right? But that's not his preferred method, right? How much different would Israel's history have been if they came into the promised land and they said, boy, this is really working well, us trusting God. Look what he did at Jericho. God, how, how would you have us to approach this next town? God tells them, before you approach that next town, you've got a problem. Achan over here, he need to take care of him. Okay, they take care of Achan. Now can we attack the next town? Yeah, go for it. They beat it. How about the next one? Yeah, go for it. Beat it. 
conquer the entire promised land, populate the entire thing. They said, boy, look at how God did in all of these areas. Look at how God has been working for us. We're just going to keep serving him. Judges wouldn't have been written. We come up to the end of Samuel. Samuel was the final judge, first prophet. Okay? And at the end of Samuel, his children are rebellious and are wicked. And the children of Israel are looking and saying, well, Samuel's kids can't take over whenever he's going. We want to have a king like all the nations around us. And God tells Samuel, because Samuel's all dejected and upset about all of it. And God tells Samuel, don't worry, Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They've, what? They've rejected me. Well, how is that? Because God brought them out of Egypt to be a peculiar people to himself. He would be to them a God. They would be to him a people. And he was to be their king. He was to be their ruler. He was to be their leader. It was a theocracy. If you turn over in Judges to chapter 1, the very first verse, they started out well. It says, Now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites first to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. That was a good start, wasn't it? What if they would have kept on by that process? And they would have kept on and not had to be oppressed by the Philistines and the Midianites and all of the other ones that came against them. What happens if they would have said, we're just going to keep following God. We have no need of a king. We get into the realm of what if, right? What if in our own lives, we'd say, I trusted God with my eternal soul. I couldn't save myself. I knew I sinned against him. I couldn't save myself, but he offered to save me without qualification, without merit on my behalf. He says, you can't do it, so let me do it. How about I just approach the rest of my life with that same philosophy? I want to trust God with everything that comes my way. I'm going to go to him with every problem. I want to seek him for every solution. And I'm just going to trust him whatever comes my way. It's not going to keep me from seeing hard times. It's not going to keep bad things from happening to me. But I'm going to be able to trust him through the bad things. I'm going to rely on him knowing that he can work all things together for good that he can prosper during the bad times, that he can take like Joseph's life and even the bad situations, turn them together for good. And I'm just going to follow him. I'm just going to trust him. How much different would our lives be if we approached it that way? Trusting God. I mean, we give it lip service, don't we? Oh yeah, I'm trusting God. But I'm worried an awful lot too. No, I'm not trusting God then. <laughs> I'm trusting God, but I'm trying hard. Trying for what? Now, I'm not saying that as Christians we shouldn't try. But usually we're trying to do it without God. Or we're trying to do it to impress God. We're trying to do it to earn God's favor. We're trying to prove ourselves worthy. That's not the way it's supposed to work. So anyway, the book of Judges shows us that God saves people not based on their merit whatsoever, but based on who he is. And for those who are saved, they are kept not because of their own merit, but because of who he is. And that over and over in our lives, we mess up, we get flattened, we end up suffering the consequences of our decisions and our sin, and we go back to God, 
we confess our sins, and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He's faithful and just to send deliverance, not because we have earned it, not because we have merited it, but because we have repented and we come back to him. It's all he's seeking. And so, in conclusion tonight, I just want to bring out a few things that I've written down here, just bullet points, that Judges teaches us. Now, the first ones I think I already covered, but God's salvation is not earned by good men, but it's given freely to sinful men when they recognize their needs and they turn to Him. The story of the book of Judges. And then when God's people take their eyes off God, without exception, okay? When God's people take their eyes off God, they spiral down downward into wickedness. That's what happens. You think you're performing well, you take your eyes off of God, you put it on the world, ruin follows. But God delivers when they repent. I'm glad that God always allows U-turns. Right? As I've said already a few times in this uh, lesson tonight, God created us to be dependent. We're dependent on Him for everything. Just as a newborn baby is dependent on their parents, we are dependent on God. And that strikes at your pride a little bit. You don't like to hear that. Because we like to think that we're self-made, that we're able to uh, exist on our own, that we're able to uh, do all these great things by ourselves. But you can't even breathe if God doesn't give you the air. So all the way throughout Scripture we find that God desires us to be dependent and man tries his best to be independent. Uh, we find in the book of Judges that trusting and obeying God is the only route to blessing. As a Christian, you can live outside of God's will. You can disobey God and you can live a disobedient life. But you can't do it happily. Because the Bible says if you be without chastisement, then you are bastards and not sons. So you, if you are God's child, you cannot live disobediently happily. The Bible says there's pleasure in sin for a season. But we know that all seasons come to an end, right? So if you are a child of God, just like he did with his children and judges, he allowed the consequences of their decisions and their actions to come to them and drive them back to himself. He'll do that in our lives as well. Because he is a good God. He is a loving God, and he will not allow us to self-destruct. Uh, following your heart always leads to ruin. Got to put that one on Walt Disney there. Following your heart always leads to ruin. Likewise, compromise with the world always leads to ruin. That's what the children of Israel were trying to do. They are going to be like the nation they lived amongst, right? Always leads to ruin. Something that I haven't brought out in this, we find that there is a pattern that is put out as we are following the nation of Israel and their development. God raises up Moses. He is a leader to the people of Israel, right? And before he dies, he says, God, please send someone to take my place. A lot of people look to Joshua as being a great leader. I've, I've heard people say that the book of Joshua is a handbook on leadership. But my argument is I believe Moses was a greater leader because he was willing to lay down his life for his people, and he had enough concern that whenever he died, he wanted there to be a successor to him. When Joshua died, who took his place? 
Nobody. And what was the result? Jesus. Well, he was coming anyway, but there was disaster. There was no one to replace, right? The reason I bring that up is that a lack of godly leadership or godly examples is also disastrous. Remember we talked about that independence that we like? We want to be the maverick. We want to be the Lone Ranger. We need godly examples. We need godly leadership. We need people that we can look to and people to, to call us into accountability, people that will help us and guide us and will call us out when we're going astray, right? You follow the nation of Israel all the way through the kings. If they have a good king, what happens to the nation? It prospers. It follows God, right? They have a wicked king. What happens? Idolatry. As the leadership goes, so goes the nation, right? And so with us, we've got to be careful who or what is leading us. This goes back to the, the message from Sunday about what are we building our lives on, right? What's leading us in our lives? If you're following your heart, you've got a bad leader. If you're following the Word of God, you've got a good leader, right? And it comes down to mankind as well. If you are allowing uh, people to have an influence over you, you better be careful who that people is. It's been said oftentimes, if you show me your friends, I will show you who you are or who you soon will be, right? Because you're going to be following them. And they're either going to lead you closer to God, they're going to lead you further from God. Be careful who you're following. And then the last thing that I've got written down here, and we'll call it quits, I believe, is that God uses imperfect people to do great things. I've ragged on these judges throughout this time. I've pointed out how Gideon was a coward. Jephthah made stupid promises, right? Samson followed his heart, right? But in spite of all of their flaws, their fears, their doubts, their pride, their whatever, God was still able to use them to do big things. And I've said from the beginning of this uh, lesson this evening that we can relate to a lot of this. We can see ourselves in a lot of this. And if we're not careful, we become a little bit negative, a little pessimistic, a little bit self-condemning in it. Say, woe is me. What a mess am I? How is God going to do anything with me? Well, that's the thing is your eyes are on you again and not on God. Because it doesn't matter how big of a mess that we are, we are not beyond God's ability. And if you think that you are so messed up that God can't use you, or that you are so stupid that God can't get through to you, you very much misjudge God and miscalculate Him. There's been times in my life that I have been fearful of missing the will of God for my life. I had it as if it was almost hidden. It was something that if I wasn't careful that I would stumble past or I wouldn't see it. It was like it was hiding behind the bushes somewhere. Any of y'all relate to that? And it was as if the will of God was going to be so difficult for me. But here's the thing. God wants me to do his will. 
He's not, it's not an Easter egg hunt. He's not hiding it and hoping I miss it. And what I ended up having to come down to is realizing that God is smart enough and capable enough that if he wants me to know his will, that he's able to get through my thick skull in order to reveal it to me and make me know what it is. If I want it. That's the difference. The people who miss the will of God are the ones that don't want the will of God. If you've already decided that you're not going to follow it anyway, you're probably not going to see it. But if you desire the will of God for your life, he's going to bring it to you. Okay, He's going to make it known to you because he has no, no reason for hiding it. But my purpose for all of this was saying that God is big enough, he's smart enough to know how to get through to you. If you look at your life and you say, I've already messed up too bad. There's nothing God can do with this. As I said, you've already misjudged God because you're saying that you are such a colossal failure. You're such a big mess up that God just like, he's exceeded me. I don't have the ability. That sounds weird you can say, doesn't it? But isn't that what we say? I've already messed up too bad. Already done too much. There's no way God could use me now. How big is God? What kind of God do you serve? If Samson wasn't too messed up, he was messed up. Are we all on one page about that? Samson was messed up. And we look at him as a hero. The only redeeming quality that Samson has is his God. And honestly, that's the only redeeming quality that we have. And so with all of that, God uses imperfect people to do great things. So there's hope for all of us. So does anyone have any questions or comments, anything to, to add to what we've looked at tonight? <clears throat> I've already said it all. We have faith in that we trust God that He can sort. I mean, we believe He can, but I think your normal flesh also tries to be wise, and you're also trying to um, go out of your way, not out of your way, but you still try and go the distance to see what mm -hmm. you can do. And sometimes you look and think, okay, well, if this doesn't work out, that means. God closing the door on this mm -hmm. or um, when I think something is right and it doesn't work out I know the Lord's hand was in that mm -hmm. for me I find that um, I believe God can do anything according to his will what he wants mm -hmm. for my life but in small things like <laughs> you know as with our, our wind wipers mm -hmm. it has been such a big thing I know and this is why I think a part of me doesn't want to just say, okay, we'll just leave and carry on. Mm -hmm. Because I know the Lord has got an answer. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also not easy because the mm -hmm. circumstances around it and you, you're waiting, you know, so mm -hmm. it's totally out of our hands. Yeah. But it, it's your flesh way that you still feel, I still got to do something. Mm -hmm. I'm not taking it from God, but initially in a way you are, but it's not like you're going to sit down and just say, okay, but whenever you're ready, you can just bring them my way. Yeah. You know, you still try and do it, you know. So it's not that you don't have the faith in believing that God mm -hmm. can do it. I think mm -hmm. you just as humanly try to also, you know, be wise and try and 
look for things. Yeah. Well, there's there's a healthy tension in there too. Yeah. Because God doesn't expect us to just sit on our backsides and wait yeah. for it to land in our laps. Uh, but if we're trusting Him and we are truly seeking His will, we go forward waiting for Him to intersect our actions with His will sometimes because He's guiding our steps. The Bible says that the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Yeah. And so it's not just, okay, set on our backsides and wait for Him to, to drop it on our laps, but we continue walking forward, trusting Him to bring about His will and make it known whenever His time comes. Uh, the problem that comes in is whenever we start getting fearful, anxious, worrying, or putting the emphasis on ourselves, I have to fix this, I have to figure it out, rather than I'm going to continue going forward and let God find a way, okay? Let God bring it to me and, and as I'm going forward, okay? Um, but that's making sense. Uh, even like you guys with your, your example of your windscreen wipers, okay? For you to just say, okay, I'm going to forget about it. I'm not going to search anymore. I'm not going to ring anyone else. I'm just going to sit here and wait until they show up in the post box whenever I didn't order them. Yeah, that's probably not going to happen. But at the same time, it's okay. God knows what we have, stand in need of. He has a way of bringing this about. And so I'm not going to worry and fret. I'm not going to lose my faith over this. I know that there is a way that this is going to happen. He's going to take care of it. I don't know how. I don't know when. But I'm going to continue living for him, searching for his will, doing the best of my ability, and he's going to make that happen. He's going to make it known. Right? Yeah, I think it's just also like a time frame, like how it affects um, certain things where you can't get out to church if it's raining or something like that. Mm -hmm. That to us is a big thing. And we mm -hmm. think, you know, people, it's like, it's just wind wipers, but it's a big thing. Yeah. So I'm excited to see how God's going to sort this out. It's one of those things that you take for granted. It's like, oh, yeah, every car has them, but yeah. have you ever tried going without them? Yeah, you need those. Yeah. But uh, uh, something else, as, as you were first uh, speaking there, came to my mind, and this, this is for, for me, okay, is that a lot of times whenever we're uh, thinking about this, we're like, oh, yeah, I have faith. I, I know God can do it, but I start doubting whether God will do it. You ever been there? Mm -hmm. I know he can, but I don't know if he will. And then where we end up going to by default is, do I deserve it? And we feel as if we have to be worthy for him to do something for us. You ever been there? Mm -hmm. And so we start looking at all of our failures, all of our shortcomings, and saying, yeah, I know God can do it, but I don't deserve it. I'm not worthy, and so he probably won't. And we start basing God's work on our goodness rather than on his. And we've come full circle, haven't we? And so it's never based on our goodness. It's never based on our worthiness. But here's the thing. If we love him, we're trusting him, we're seeking his will, we're doing our best to serve him. That's all he asks for. He doesn't ask for us to be performing perfect. He doesn't expect us to, you know, to have so high of a performance. We're not trying to merit it. He's just saying, okay, as long as you are following me, as long as you're seeking me, as long as your eyes are on me, we're good. Now, if you're living your life outside of him, if you're saying, God, I don't care about what you want from me. I don't care about what your will is for me. I'm going to do my own thing. 
and then something comes up and it's like, okay, God, fix this. Like he's your spare tire. That's a different story. You can't expect him to just come and pop in whatever you want him, like your concierge or your, your genie or whatever. But if you're following God, you're living for him, messing up, flawed, stumbling through, but still seeking him. It's all he requires of us, right? You're never going to be perfect. You're never going to perform perfectly. But get your eyes on him, trust him, desire him. And you'll see him working in your life. You'll see him changing your heart, your desires. You'll see how he's perfecting, doing that perfect work in your heart over time. Because it's him that does it in us. Anything else? Okay, if there's nothing else to go, we'll go to the Lord in prayer. We'll call it a night. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings, and we thank you for all that you do for us. Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity that we have to be here and to, to look at your word. Lord, we thank you for uh, what a blessing your word is, uh, the light that it shines on our lives, and even on our own hearts, Lord. And we just ask you, Lord, that you would uh, just take this and help us, Lord, to, to meditate on it, to think on it, Lord, to... Uh, that you'd use it to, to reorient our minds and our hearts, Lord, and correct our, our faulty thinking and such. And Lord, I, I just thank you for your mercy, for your grace, for your salvation. Lord, we do love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name I pray. And amen.